This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, don't call it a comeback. We have an interesting story for you now of an Elvis tribute artist who's actually had his career revitalized because of this COVID-19 pandemic. And if you're wondering how is that possible, well, we're going to find out. His name is Darren Lee. He's from Port Coquitlam, and he spoke to our Nikki Reitmeyer. We're calling it a Darren Lee, I, uh, I've been an Elvis tribute artist for 30 years. I won the World Elvis Competition in 1997. I uh, was the longest running Elvis in the history of Las Vegas, and I'm now dealing just like everybody else in the world with COVID. Okay, I have a question for you, actually. Is yeah. it is it taboo? Can I call you an Elvis impersonator? Is this or is that kind of a taboo word? If you look in the dictionary, it'd be Elvis impersonator. We call ourselves Elvis tribute artists, and but whatever, you know. If that's the word that people use, it's just a connotation that just goes with Elvis impersonator. People just look, they frown down on that, like, oh, my God, it's just a terrible guy in a bad suit and can't <laughs> sing and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I, I've, I've risen above that and, and whatever, but call me whatever you want, you know. No, let's talk about your history as a tribute artist. You have such an accomplished career. Yeah, I, I started, I was I'm originally born and raised in Edmonton, Alberta in 19... 19- 1988, a friend of mine and I entered a contest in Edmonton in a small little ice cream diner. And I came in second and he came in third and he went on and became a professional Elvis. He went doing his own show. Later that year, there was a promoter that uh, wanted to start up a show called Elvis, Elvis, Elvis. And they hired him to be the 1970s Elvis and they had a guy who could do the 1960s middle Elvis. But they needed a guy who could do the younger 50s Elvis. And, and so he recommended me. So... The promoter phoned me and said, can you send me a video? The only video I had was of the, that contest, and it wasn't very good. And after reviewing the uh, video, the promoter phoned and said, well, I don't have anybody else, so you'll do. <laughs> so <laughs> I basically had I had a week to prepare. He was basically, okay, you need to come to Winnipeg. You're in the show. So my brother and I, who, uh, believe it or not, my brother is an Elvis tribute artist too. He's younger than I am, and we would watch Elvis movies, and they'd rewind them, and, and he'd get up and he'd do the move sort of okay i'd get up and i I had two left feet and and once you go on on, get on the road and you're doing shows and whatever you just find out what what your legs can do what your arms can do turn this way turn that way kind of thing and you know i I did that for a couple years and then in uh 1991 i went to memphis tennessee i heard that they had uh a world Elvis competition there. And I entered the, in 91 and one of the judges called me a disgrace. What? <laughs> well, there were, there was a pole there. So I, I was doing jealous rock, right? Jealous rock, the pole. I swing it around the pole and he said, you're a disgrace. So I kept on entering this contest every year in 95. I came in third in the world. And then in 1997, I won the world Elvis competition in Memphis what doors are open there is is when you put up a sign in in a city you're playing in and you just go Elvis impersonator here tonight it's like big deal but when you put the number one rated Elvis tribute artist in the entire world you know that that's something else and I was living in uh, Port Coquitlam when I won that contest from that point on 
At the end of 1999, the Stratosphere Hotel put in uh, Elvis slot machines. Elvis slot machines went in all, all over Las Vegas, and, and the Stratosphere said, we want an Elvis in that show. I went down there and, and passed my audition, and 11 years later, I was the longest-running Elvis in the history of Las Vegas. And after Vegas, just after the show ended, we came home, and I was doing shows for about two and a half years. And then... Uh, my wife said to me, well, you're not making enough money, so you need to go get yourself a day job. And I said, well, I'm the longest running Elvis in, in Vegas. What do you suggest? And she said, well, my father-in-law drives a bus for the city of Vancouver, and I heard that they're hiring. So my response was no. The next day, I picked up the phone, and I made a deal with the devil that looking back, if, if I would have, if I could have looked into a crystal ball, I would never have made that call because that it destroyed. It, it took me to a level that I've never been to before, but... In the end of it all, it, it destroyed everything that was dear to me. So basically, I picked up the phone. I phoned a guy that, that I'd done a private show for that lived in Memphis. And I said, how would you like to own an Elvis Luau in Maui? And he said, if you can set us up with an audition, we'll go down. We'll do it. I'll pay for it. We'll do it. So we went down. We did an audition. And we were going to open up an Elvis Luau. And, and somebody that had seen me doing that performance said that they're looking for somebody to go into the Maui Theater. Would you guys be interested? My partner at the time i was supposed partner went and made a deal and we opened up the uh burn and love show at the maui theater which went on to become the the biggest uh biggest show in in hawaiian history it's, it was the number one rated show on TripAdvisor for four and a half years and for the next four and a half years we give we gave part of the proceeds of every ticket to the maui food bank and at that time it got to be a hundred thousand dollars that we had uh, given to them and and the show was was phenomenal it was a riser took me 20 feet up in the air. There were six dancers, band, eight costume changes. And it was based on Elvis's life and career in Hawaii. It was the best thing that I have ever been a part of. The bad thing about it is that uh, my partner stopped paying the bills. Oof. So stopped paying the rent. I'm surprised they didn't come and lock up the place. And uh, one day I got a phone call from, from the manager at the theater and said that the uh, lighting company was at the theater with the sheriff and they were coming to take all the theater lights out of the theater because my partner hadn't paid the bills in a year. And so he knew that the end was coming and he, was, he wasn't getting a fast enough return. So he just started putting the money into his pocket. He was paying payroll and that was about it. Oh, man. And I was a 35% partner that never received his partnership. You know, I, I, I got all these fringe benefits and I was treated like gold. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the lights were pulled out of the theater. He shut the show down. And two weeks later, my uh, wife decides that she's leaving me. And so for the last two and a half years, I've been kind of spiraling. People handing me, friends of mine handing me money, paying my rent, paying my whatever. And it's just like I have very good friends. I don't take advantage of that whatsoever. But I got to Christmas time and I was like, if I don't get myself a job, you know, I'm not going to be able to pay anything here. So I started putting out ads. It didn't take very long, and I was hired by uh, a restaurant supply company. And the restaurants are out of business, and I'm going, well, that's great. I can't perform anywhere. And now my job as, as a restaurant delivery guy is, is finished too because the restaurants are closing. So we started doing live performances in the house, and they were, they were two hours straight because I, I just can't be shut up. So you would do and, two hours on Facebook Live just singing, entertaining people? Yep, yeah, yeah, two hours. So then then being being the crazy guy I am, I was just driving home, which shouldn't – don't do this, kids, at home. Don't try this. But I was like, well, you know what? I'm just going to start singing here in the car while I'm driving. 
So I'd set my, my phone up on the dash, put my tracks in, and I just started singing and went live. Driving back home and just singing at the top of my voice, my window's down. And, and then my friend uh, that lives in Port Coquitlam phoned and said, we're going to be banging pots and pans at 7 o'clock. Why don't you come over here and sing? So then I was like, yeah, sure. So I pulled the car up into a front of her house, turned on the car stereo, and without a microphone, I sang for the next two hours. Wow. Nonstop. And I didn't stop until my car battery died. <laughs> That's incredible. Right? I'm surprised you didn't lose your voice between you know the car battery or your voice. Which was the first one to 30, go? 30 years of singing, it's, it's a... It's a People call me a machine. And so this continues on. Tuesday was at uh, an A&W restaurant, outside the A&W restaurant, using their free Wi-Fi on Lohi Highway uh, in uh, Coquitlam. So then because of this story that came out in, in the uh, Tri-City News the other day, I've received 50 emails from people, because I put my email address, 50 emails from people saying, can you come to sing in, my, in front of my house for my mother's birthday or Mother's Day is coming up? And I'm going, well, geez, maybe my career isn't finished now. This could turn into being something that's, okay, Darren Lee goes and sings in, in front of people's houses and stuff. You know, I'm listening to the radio. I, that's the only station I'm listening to is, is CKNW. And then you guys phone and say you want to do this. And, and this morning there's an email from the Vancouver Sun. They want to take that story and they want to, you know, so it, it's kind of like when the career, you think it's over, but everything in life is meant to be good or bad. And I went through a lot of crap the last two years and, and thought that I lost it all, but I never give up, you know, and I, I never want to do my shows. I, I still give 155%. It doesn't matter what, what's happening in my personal life or whatever, you know, it, it's, it's basically, I still give a thousand percent and, and, and it's just, just to keep singing. It's my career. And, and I, I'm not a delivery guy. I'm an entertainer and I just do this because this is what's keeping me alive. And, and I do enjoy it. I do like driving, but I'm an entertainer. This is Mornings with Simi. If you leave it alone, like many insects, it won't bother you. But, yes, it does have a risk to us for, because of its, uh, its ability to have a reaction. That was Gail Wallen, Executive Director of the Invasive Species Council of BC. She was talking about Asian hornets. These, of course, are the very invasive species that essentially feed on other bees. This is the hornet that has been now nicknamed the murder hornet in all the news stories that you've been hearing about it. And, you know, the fact that it causes such destruction to other bees, well, that's just something we don't need right now. It's the last thing we need as the health of bee populations all over North America continue to be a concern. So to talk more about this, like how much do we really need to worry about this thing? And has it been spotted in BC? Uh, Joining us now is Conrad Barubi, the Senior Environmental Protection Officer and beekeeper. Conrad, thanks for being here this morning. No problem. Glad to be glad glad to have some interest. Well, lots of interest on this. I was thinking you must be very busy answering a lot of questions about this. Yeah, it kind of blew up uh, yesterday evening. I just happened to check my email, uh, and it was like, oh, my goodness, There's, there was a lot of uh, related communications. <laughs> oh, yes, there are. So tell me, what it, how concerned should we be about this Asian giant hornet? It's now been spotted, you know, just across the line there in Custer, Washington. Yeah, um, the I, I was a bit, frankly, shocked to see the adjective murder, <laughs> murder hornet, uh, <laughs> The, the victim of the murders are uh, honeybees, so people shouldn't be, you know, too concerned that uh, these, these hornets are roaming the streets looking to cause uh, havoc among the general population. Um, the uh, hornets 
uh, are uh, native to uh, Asia, but have recently been found both in British Columbia and uh, the state of Washington. And uh, the principal threat is to uh, honeybee colonies and uh, related uh, agriculture uh, that depends on pollination. Right, but it is so destructive, though, that like it is something that governments definitely want to keep an eye on, right? Oh, yes, for sure. So, so there are uh, monitoring uh, programs in place. Uh, that monitoring, uh, at least in British Columbia, uh, is depending uh, significantly on the voluntary participation of beekeepers who are monitoring their own apiaries with uh, homemade traps. Uh, here in Nanaimo, uh, the and Imo Beekeeping Club uh, has distributed uh, traps to its membership, and uh, they're keeping a, a close eye on their uh, on the bottle traps and sticky traps in their apiaries. Okay, let's run through this then. How can we recognize one of these things? Uh, they're they're fairly distinctive because of their uh, large size. They're about uh, uh, between one and a half and two inches long. Uh, the Conrad, ones that's that would huge. be uh, spotted at this time of year would be the queen, so they would be on the larger two-inch size, um, and uh, they have uh, very distinctively large orange heads. Um, so they they look like a you know if, if if you were to see one, you'd think oh that's a gigantic wasp. <laughs> and no, you'd you would run be right. screaming from it, Conrad. That's what you would do. It's a two-inch hornet you're talking about. That's right. So, um, so, but to people, uh, there have been a couple of unsubstantiated reports of of these hornets flying into flying into vehicles. Uh, in which case, your 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 best bet is to just kind of roll the window down and shoo them out. They're not they're not likely to uh, to uh, attack you unless they feel cornered. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's not uh, funny, but, actually. Uh, <laughs> if uh, beekeepers notice these insects uh, flying around their apiaries. They should uh, try and whack them with a stick or, or net them with uh, one of the cheap butterfly catching nets that uh, can be had in uh, you know most five and ten stores. Um, but I understand, Conrad. Let me ask you this: I understand that the stingers, in particular, like if they do sting you, if they do feel threatened, how bad is that? It hurts a lot. It's it's the I, I've uh, worked with uh, defensive African bees in Africa and Latin America, and uh, the sting of the uh, Asian giant hornet is probably about ten times as uh, painful. It's it's like being uh, stuck with a red hot thumbtack. Okay, that none of that sounds good, and I understand it can even pierce like traditional beekeeping equipment. That that's certainly true. Uh, there there's their sting mechanism is about a quarter of an inch long and uh, can can pass through several layers of clothing, as uh, happened happened to me when we were taking out a nest. Um, I was uh, uh, stung about seven times in the course of our uh, killing the the nest that was found uh, found near here. And you uh, were stung seven times by an Asian giant hornet. Well, by several giant hornets. I think I think the first four stings that I took. Uh, in hindsight, um, those were those four stings were probably from the same individual because unlike honeybees that can sting uh, only once, uh, hornets have a have a smooth sting me- sting mechanism and can sting a single individual can sting a number of times. Uh, so the first four stings that I took were 
through a couple of pair of pants as I was trying to uh, vacuum vacuum them up with a dust buster uh, in preparation for uh, taking the nest out and wanted to collect some, some specimens. And I thought a dust buster would be a good way of collecting some individuals only to find that they were way too big to fit through the nozzle. So uh, uh, nothing about this is reassuring at all. Conrad, from what you're saying, retreat and uh, 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 dose them with carbon dioxide quickly thereafter to uh, to subdue them. So they can sting you multiple times, and even one sting you said is like ten times worse than a bee sting. Correct. How did you manage with that? Uh, Well, I I used to collect uh, yellow jacket nests. Uh, commercially about 20 years ago. So um, I, I have been stung by wasps and hornets numerous times. Uh, and so I'm kind of used to the sensation of being stung. Uh, and uh, I probably also have some residual antibodies, so I don't don't swell up very much. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it, because uh, it was... Uh, basically crucial to, to extract that nest. We just uh, uh, bore down and, and carried on to, uh, to remove the nest. Okay, that's amazing then. So should we be worried? I know this makes for great headlines and everybody's talking about it though, but you know, how worried should the general population be? Uh, the general population shouldn't be too worried. It was, it was, it's kind of like the killer bee craze of the, of the 1970s. Um, uh, they, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of hoopla about killer bees and, uh, civilization in the United States didn't, didn't come crashing down, uh, because of the killer bees. I think there were other things that contributed to that, but, um, the, uh, uh, hornet is not going to be of, of general peril to the, to the public. If you've, if you've never stepped on a yellow jacket nest or stepped near a, an underground uh, yellow jacket nest, uh, you're not likely to come across these critters uh, as, as we are uh, a, a healthful populace that likes exercising in the uh, woodlands where these um, hornets have their subterranean right. nests. Uh, there is a chance that people who are, who are out uh, hiking in, in the woodlands may come across one of these nests. Uh, if you if you do, um, you know if uh, if if you encounter a, a nest, run away. <laughs> okay. That is not reassuring uh. advice, Conrad. But if you if you do see one or you think you see one, is there somebody you should notify? Like, is there a website that you should go to? Yeah. Um, so so. The, the little ditty we've come up with is slap, snap, zap, and wrap. Uh, so slap it with a stick to kill it, snap a photo of it, uh, zap an email off to info at bcinvasives.ca and nanaimobeekeepers at gmail.com and wrap it in a Ziploc bag and freeze it in case the sample is needed for later. All right. I don't know. People might just run. I don't know if they'll have a chance to actually do that, but uh, I will certainly encourage them to do so. Conrad, thank you. Thank you so much, Simi. That is Conrad Barubi, a senior environmental protection officer and beekeeper who has been stung multiple times. 
times by these Asian giant hornets, which has gotten a lot of attention in the last couple of days because they have now been spotted in Custer, Washington state, right across the border from us. So yeah, there is a concern. So you heard what he said. If you think you see one, if you kill it, take a, take a picture of it, go onto that Invasive Species Council of BC website, and then send them the information about this because they need to keep track of these things. This is Mornings with Simi. Are you ready to go back to eating out at a restaurant? Are you ready, especially in this kind of weather that we're going to be getting this week, to sit out on a patio maybe? Well, restaurants are certainly hoping that is the case. As part of planning for the reopening of businesses, last week, Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby-Young put forward a motion at Council requesting that the city allow pubs and restaurants who don't currently have patios the ability to open an outdoor space to serve patrons, wanting to kind of cut the red tape on that to make it more welcoming for people. Also, I would assume an opportunity there for them to social distance inside the restaurant a little bit more. So Emily is a manager at Donnellan's Irish Pub on Granville Street, and she has been writing letters to City Council in the hopes that they will approve the motion. And she said, you know, patios and more of them could have some benefits short and long term in the revitalization of the Granville Street area. She spoke to our Nikki Reitmeyer about how their business has been affected by the pandemic. Well, we are closed, of course. We've been closed since March 17th. We're in an odd position just because we aren't very much inclined to start doing takeout and delivery on apps that do tend to kind of take a large cut of what you can make off them and pick up and take out are a little bit of a tough go on Granville Street just because there's not a lot of pedestrian traffic down here and people aren't really inclined to like come down to Granville Street to go for a walk and pick up their dinner. So we are kind of stuck at the moment just trying to prepare for when we are able to open again, which of course, like, we're so delighted to see that the measures that are in place are doing what they're meant to do. And we don't want to um, go back to work until it's team safe to do so. But all we can do right now is plan and work for when that is going to happen. Yeah, and from what I understand, a part of that planning is that you're petitioning the city to change some existing rules to assist you and to assist other businesses on Granville Street in that reopening phase, right? Yes, it was something that I had been thinking of for a little while, and Councillor Kirby Young put forward a motion last week regarding patio permitting, and it was such great timing because it was, as soon as I saw it, I was like, that is exactly what is going to probably make a huge difference for us when we are able to open again, specifically on Granville Street, because we have, I think we share with a lot of the businesses on the street, a very large footprint. And when you have that big of a venue, you do kind of have to fill it to be able to break even or not have super razor thin margins. So having a little bit of extra space outside would make such a huge difference for us. I've reached out to Councillor Kirby Young and I'm sending letters to the mayor and the city council and working with the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association to just kind of get our voices heard and let the city council know that this is something that will be a huge, huge help to us. Well, the restaurant industry and the nightclub industry, you guys face a really interesting challenge in reopening because like Premier Horgan said, the doors to your establishment can open tomorrow, 
But people have to feel confident. People have to feel safe in order to come inside. I know personally, I look forward to going back to restaurants and bars again. But yeah, I would feel more comfortable right now sitting on a patio in the fresh air and having a meal as opposed to going inside the establishment, just after everything that's been drilled into our minds about this pandemic and social distancing. Absolutely. I think that's why it would be such a huge help because we are going to work our hardest to instill confidence in people and having that extra space where they can spread out and be outside and feel like they're not at risk by going out to socialize. It's a huge difference. Now, the other side of this idea that, that kind of catches my attention is the possible long-term benefits. Granville Street, frankly, does not have the best reputation. It's not exactly the cleanest street in the city. You've got people sleeping in tents on the sidewalk or people sleeping in doorways on the sidewalk. It doesn't exactly scream, this is the place where you want to come sit on a patio and have a nice lunch. I think that there's a lot of businesses that are trying their best to make it clean and safe and welcoming to visitors but they're fighting an uphill battle. You're fighting an uphill battle. And I really do hope that the city approves this plan for patios because maybe it's a step in not just allowing businesses a safer way to reopen as we ease out of the pandemic this summer, but there could be long-term benefits in regards to the revitalization of that street. I think it would change the fabric of the street entirely. Having people think of Granville Street as like a nightlife weekend nightclub destination. And while that is true, and there are many places like that, there are lots of great cafes, pubs, restaurants that serve from breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I think that's something that we have a hard time as well, because we are, we do have great weekend business, but our lunchtime business could use quite a bit of help. And it's hard on this street because there aren't a lot of passers by. People aren't wandering the streets the way they might on Commercial Drive or on in Gastown um, or Main Street even. So having um, a patio that people can sit in the sun on and having that be part of the culture of the area, because there are some spaces that do have patios now, but because this isn't a destination for that, for sitting outside, you don't see them in use so often. But if that's part of the the culture of the street and you have these vibrant bars and restaurants in what is meant to be an entertainment district in Vancouver and people know that this is a destination for that, it would make a huge difference. You could see people coming down to Granville Street and going for a wander through the great shops that are here, look, having it, stopping and having a drink in a pub, having some lunch at a great restaurant. We're surrounded by these great businesses that just don't get to see the traffic that I think that they really deserve. This is Mornings with Simi. I will admit there's a certain amount of irony attached to this next story. It turns out this is Emergency Preparedness Week. Of all the things that we are doing or have been doing during this COVID-19 shutdown, I wonder how many of us decided that this was the time to put our earthquake kit together. I'm guessing no. I'm guessing a lot of us did so many other things, cleaning our closet, baking sourdough bread, baking banana bread, you name it. But did any of you decide, this is how I'm going to get ready for a disaster that may strike here in uh, the Metro Vancouver area? Well, to talk more about Emergency Preparedness Week, we're joined by Michael Lund, the Salvation Army uh, public relations person. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Timmy. What do you think? Do you think people took this opportunity to do that? (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm probably not top, probably not top of their list uh, over the last month and a half. Okay, so there's an irony then that we're talking about this now because there's still time, right? This is a good week to do that. Absolutely. I think if COVID-19 has told us anything, it's you should be prepared. Um, and at the very least for 72 hours um, in an emergency, that's what we recommend. So uh, quite ironic, yes. Okay, so then what should people have? I know there's some recommendations about the things that you should have for this. What is it? Um, well, you know, it's not just earthquakes. I mean, when people think about emergency preparedness, they think about big disasters like um, earthquakes and tsunamis, but it can be something as simple as a fire in your house. But And certainly in BC, we're very susceptible to things like massive forest fires and floods and tsunamis. And if you listen to the experts, you know, they say it's not a matter of if, but when the big one comes. So um, two things are super important. One, develop a plan, right? Even if it's just uh, a plan to get out of your house during a fire, that's part of emergency preparedness. Um, But on the bigger scale thing, plan your routes home. Uh, have a contact sheet uh, with important contact numbers on there. Uh, make sure you have copies of identification that you take with you. Uh, that's something people forget all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, cash. Cash is super important. Always have a stack of cash on hand. Uh, if you know we have a massive earthquake and our infrastructures go down, cash True. will be king. Um, the other things you can do, medical supplies, you know, you want to have, and, and that seems like a given, but people forget that all the time. And one thing that people don't think about in emergency kits is pet food. Um, ah. Your pets will need, right? Your pets need to survive too. So thinking of them uh, at times like this is super important. Um, and the other thing is um, think about, you know, two, three, three days and one week plans. So those are some of the things they can do right up front. All right. I think we should get people working on that this week for sure. Mike, thanks for your time. Absolutely. Thanks, Jimmy. I appreciate it. That's Michael Len from the Salvation Army. It is Emergency Preparedness Week. So, good time. We're still home, right? Not everything has shifted to us going back to work and getting things moving again. So, one more thing on your list that you can do, you probably made enough baked goods to last a lifetime at this point, is get that disaster preparedness kit ready for your house. Let me know. Maybe you've already got one. Maybe you've already done that. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. If there's one thing that we've really gotten used to in this pandemic situation is the idea of having things delivered to our homes, right? Whether it is groceries or alcohol or food, it's really become a part of everything. I don't know how you take away alcohol delivery when this is all over. I just That's going to be something that we're going to have to talk about. But we know for food delivery companies, those apps, they have been incredibly busy, but not all restaurants are happy with that. A lot of them have cited the high service fees that those uh, delivery apps charge them as a problem. Uh, something that an obstacle to them actually making money uh, during this situation. Well, there might be a local version of this now that might help some restaurants out. So, uh, the owner of Pigeon Restaurant in Gastown is Braden Grossudian. He actually has started his own delivery service called From Two, and he joins us now to talk more about this. Brandon, thank you very much for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Sue. Good morning. Good morning. So tell me, what made you want to do this? Um, well, we... When this started, we started seeing this happen, I would say kind of in January when we saw a lot of our uh, Chinese colleague restaurant friends uh, having some issues and seeing their business start to go uh, remarkably down. 
we started to try and look at what it would look like if this came across, you know, went through Vancouver, went through Canada and, and kind of how we would have to adjust. So we started to put together these relationships with uh, delivery drivers. And this is in the context of Pigeon. And, um, and we realized really quickly that that math just didn't make sense for a lot of, you know, standard retail uh, brick and mortar style business, um, that the, the costs of it were, were quite restrictive and that it was going to be a very tough go really quickly. Um, so we, I have experience in the software industry back in the day uh, prior to Pigeon and decided that this is maybe some way in which I could, uh, uh, I could start to help. So spiked out some code and then um, uh, happy to say that we've created some partnerships with people that are very good in the software side on the delivery logistics side and very good on the e-commerce side. And we've put together these two companies to create from two. Uh, and uh, quite excited to say that we're going to be launching full end-to-end, uh, so an e-commerce solution to delivery and everything, uh, restaurants, food, alcohol, etc., cetera, uh, for May the 12th uh, for us, for Pigeon First, and then by the 19th, uh, we have a lot of partners that want to join. I think we're just going to be starting with five, uh, and then we're going to go kind of neighborhood by neighborhood, five restaurants at a time. This sounds like a great idea because that is that is one thing we've heard a lot, that people are not happy, restaurants in particular, not happy with these big delivery apps, are they? No, and, and that's kind of where we want to we wanna work with, uh, with our restaurant partners. And, and, you know, coming from the restaurant industry itself, um, you know, there's a lot of obfuscation, kind of confusion in the way that they charge in a lot of pieces. And so... What we wanted to do was have an at-cost model that's transparent to both the restaurant, the driver, um, and the customer, um, so that everybody kind of knows what they're in for in this kind of weird relationship. So uh, the only thing that from two is going to be charging is the driver fee and the credit card commissions, and both of which... Um, you know, from two at this point is, is looking at kind of being a non-profit, really, not classified right. as but the intention is to rather than have this kind of parasitic relationship where you know the um uh you know the the services the the parasite kind of killing the host here in the case of restaurants uh we want to be there to help and, and maybe provide some solutions especially in such a tough time do you think brendan that people will notice that price difference too you know that's what's interesting i think i think you'll you'll see you see a lot of advertising these days from uh, you know, the big three kind of uh, delivery apps and they say zero delivery during this time and all these wonderful things that say that they're helping. Um, but usually that's, you know, kind of hidden behind and the customer sees that, but the restaurant's still paying 30%, sometimes more than 30%, uh, depending on the relationship. So they just waive the delivery fee, which was which is kind of extra cash on top of what that relationship already was. Okay, so, so how so can I'm, people find this? It's it's kind of you, you. You basically have to sign a restaurant contract. You'll see it in certain places where I think some people are a little bit more uh, transparent. But in the case of From Two, um, you know we're going to show it all the way through. So the intention is to say, you know, this is how much it takes for the food to get from A to B. Um, the restaurant is chosen to subsidize that fee, or chosen not to, and pass that directly to the customer. But I think. Um, in this case, there's a lot of ways in which all of us can become more educated to help right. um, help restaurants. Because now more than ever, I think local retail and restaurants is is our local economy right. and is the way that things operate. And we want to see them succeed. We certainly do. So, Brandon, we'll put the word out on that. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 
Uh, that's Brandon Grassuti, the owner of Pigeon in Gastown. They are launching their own app, their own food delivery app. It's called From Two. It's going to be available in the next couple of weeks. Certainly more beneficial to local restaurants to use this. So if you get a chance, check it out.